Back in the beginning of November, a guest speaker called Jake Morrill from the UUA National Office held a congregational seminar here at UUCL. The topic was leadership in the emotionally mature congregation. Many of us were there that night. It was valuable for navigating issues in the life of the congregation, but it had a wider application for gaining perspective in relationships in every aspect of life. To start with, Jake noted that we live in volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous times. Who can disagree? Every time we have a check-in at a meeting, someone says, what's bringing me down the news? We're worried just about all the time. And one of the first points Jake made was that when anxiety rises, maturity drops. So some way on in Jake's meeting, one of our number in the congregation asked, what can we do to give our kids hope? What's it gonna be like for them? We're pretty concerned about it. And when anxiety rises, maturity drops. How are we supposed to keep our heads when all about us are losing theirs and raise children out of this mess into loving, effective adults who might actually improve on things? I am not a child-rearing expert, but I know someone who is, and he comes to mind because this past year, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the publication of his great series of works on child rearing known as the first folio. In 1623, seven years after William Shakespeare died, 750 copies of this book were published. It contains 36 of the 39 plays of his that we know of and because none of his manuscripts has survived, without this book, we would be a much poorer world than we already are. So when you say your prayers tonight, remember that of the 235 copies that remain of the original 750, 82 of them are right here in Washington at the Folger Shakespeare Library. And we English speakers enjoy a very great privilege. We can read Shakespeare in the original. Now, he wrote a lot about kings. They were the people with the power in his time. And because they were rich and glamorous as well, everyone wanted to see the 17th century version of the crown. We've got presidents and senators, but we can hear what Shakespeare has to say metaphorically because what he dealt with throughout his works was power. Who has it? Who doesn't? How far you'll go in order to get it? what it does to you if you succeed or if you fail, how you use the people around you in your climb to power and what revenge they might take on you, what havoc our interlocking power games wreak at school, at work, at home. Whether you're in Loudoun County or on Capitol Hill, Shakespeare has something to say to you about the consequences of power and oppression. What does this have to do with giving our children hope? From the minute your newborn starts screaming his head off, aren't parent-child power games among the most baffling you've ever struggled with? We want so much for our kids. We know so much more than they do about some things, but not about other things. And we disagree on which of those things is which. And the stakes are so high. We want to protect them, but we want them to be savvy and resilient enough to navigate on their own. And above all, we want them to be happy. 
and we so often think we know best how to get them there. Shakespeare dealt with parents and children throughout his plays, but one of the clearest examples is one of his earliest. He was only 33 when he wrote Romeo and Juliet, and everyone around the world knows about it right up to Taylor Swift. A gorgeous, heart-rending love story about two young lovers doomed by fate to die before their lives could even get started, right? Well, I don't think Shakespeare was trying to write Hallmark in tights because he sets the whole trajectory out in a sonnet that a narrator recites before act one, scene one even opens. Two houses, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrow doth with their death bury their parents' strife. It's all right there. Shakespeare told us the outcome by the time the curtain goes up. This is not gonna be a suspense melodrama. And furthermore, he made his hero and heroine very young. In the old tale, he got this, uh, he used as a source for this play, the lovers are in their late teens, which is uh, grown-ups for the purposes of marriage at that time. Shakespeare lowered their ages by several years to 13 and 15. So what's his point? Not that we're all helpless before the workings of fate. The aim of Romeo and Juliet is to show us what happens when the people who are supposed to take care of their children don't do their jobs. In Shakespeare's day, there were three entities with responsibility for children's lives, their parents, the church, and the state. And the action of the whole play demonstrates what an interlocking mess they make when they fail to live up to their obligations. It starts with a street brawl. The two families, the Montagues and the Capulets, have been feuding forever. No one really remembers why, especially not the teenage hotheads looking for trouble on the baking summertime streets of Verona, waving their swords and upsetting fruit baskets in the market square. Eventually, things get out of hand, and the prince gallops in on his horse with the equivalent of a police escort, like every cop movie you've ever seen, and starts throwing his weight around. No, no asking what the grievances actually are, no bringing the leaders in for private talks, no midnight basketball, and above all, no listening. Get out of here, you punks, he essentially yells. I'm sick and tired of you. The next, next time this happens, the one responsible is going into exile. Verona is a city-state, so that's like being deported. You can't come back home again. That's how the state handles it. Then we meet the parents. They're rich hotshots. Lord Montague, Romeo's father, is afraid to discipline his son, afraid his son won't like him if he tries to make him do something he doesn't want to do. So he's given up being a father and lets Romeo run wild. Like any number of 15-year-olds, he's fallen in love with a girl who doesn't like him back. And so he spends his days moping and writing bad poetry, <laughs> which has at least kept him off the streets. Juliet's parents, however, know exactly what they want. Juliet may be only 13, but her social climbing mother has her eye on a great match, a sweet guy called Paris, who must be at least 10 years older than Juliet, and tells her daughter, who's still being taken care of by her nurse, 
to get ready because to Juliet's surprise and dismay, they're gonna go right ahead with the marriage. Lord Capulet is totally fine with whatever his wife wants because he's mainly concerned with arranging a big bash he's putting on to cement his position as one of Verona's leading citizens. He's a glad-handing blowhard who only wants his own way, never listens to anyone, and throws tantrums when thwarted. I'm convinced that Norman Lear, creator of Archie Bunker, had studied Lord Capulet very well. Thanks to Lord Capulet's careless inattention to what's going on around him, Romeo and his pals, who of course aren't invited since they're Montagues, find out about the party and determine to crash it, which they do, and Romeo and Juliet meet, old loves are instantly forgotten, and they determine to sneak off and elope when he afterwards climbs over the wall and converses with her on her famous balcony. And here's where the church comes in. Because they're good kids, they determine to get married, so Romeo goes to his old teacher, Friar Lawrence, for help, and after a lot of slapstick sneaking around and lying, Friar Lawrence marries them against their parents' wishes, as he well knows. Then it stops being a comedy. On his way back from the impromptu ceremony, a newlywed Romeo encounters his friend Mercutio quarreling with Juliet's cousin Tybalt. Things deteriorate, swords are drawn, Romeo tries to stop them. Tybalt reaches under Romeo's arm, stabs Mercutio fatally, and Romeo loses his head and kills Tybalt, his new wife's kinsman. The prince reappears. Romeo is sent away from Verona into exile, and Juliet tears off to tell Friar Lawrence. Here's Friar Lawrence's chance, and he blows it completely. He doesn't go to the prince. He doesn't go to the parents. He could have called them together and used their children's love to stop the whole silly feud. No one really intended to kill anyone and bring an end to the bloodshed and mayhem and effected a really terrific high society wedding into the bargain. He could have been a hero. Instead, he comes up with a cockamamie scheme that involves fake poisons, sneaking into tombs, pinpoint timing, messages sent by mule, and above all, secrecy and lying. He's such a monster that he thinks allowing a mother and father to mistakenly believe their only daughter is dead is a good idea. And when the whole thing blows up and Romeo arrives at the tomb too soon, thinks Juliet really is dead and kills himself, two seconds before she wakes up and discovers him, Friar Lawrence scrams yelling, I dare no longer stay leaving a 13-year-old girl alone in a tomb to discover her dead husband's body. Remember, this isn't some made-up medieval organization. This is the Roman Catholic Church. The same one we found out in the 20th century had spent decades all over the world abusing boys and girls just like Romeo and Juliet and helping priests get away with it. The one that had a cardinal a couple of months ago who was on the road to becoming pope, but instead got convicted of embezzlement and lost everything. Shakespeare knew what he was talking about. Romeo and Juliet didn't die because they fell in love. They died because the people who were supposed to take care of them didn't do their jobs. And Shakespeare's message is take this seriously. If you're not emotionally mature, if you don't put aside your ego-driven feuds and your ambitions and your refusal to confront issues and your need to feel important and your terror of losing face, 
If you can't bring yourself to stop harboring secrets and telling lies, if you use the thing most, most precious in your life as a pawn in your own power games, you will lose it. And then you will finally understand that nothing else mattered. See what a scourge is laid upon your hate that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. The message is not that we, the audience, are bad parents. The message, the brawls and the fake poisons and the society parties and the double suicides are for dramatic effect, so we'll pay attention. The message is that the way to teach our children how to live effectively is to live our own lives effectively. If we want our children to have hope, we must have hope. And hope requires acknowledging uncertainty. It requires admitting to our children that we don't know how things are gonna turn out. And that requires admitting it to ourselves. As Jake Morrill said to us, the times are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We can't guarantee that if you work hard and play by the rules, everything will be fine. And that is why we you use work by covenant instead of by commandment. We're all making it up as we go along. Rules won't always work, but coming to each encounter with love uppermost in our minds will. In the end, it will. And we have to try for that truth in our every encounter so our children will know how to do it too. It takes practice. We start, we fail, we start again. But it's always possible that one day any one of us might, even if just for a nanosecond, get a whiff of the freedom of being comfortable with uncertainty. It sounds paradoxical, but comfort with uncertainty is what keeps us from getting bogged down in despair on the one hand or lulled into complacent optimism on the other. If we're willing to live with uncertainty, it keeps us thinking, planning, moving forward, acting. That is what our children see. It is said that Thomas Edison tested well over a thousand materials before he found the filament that made the incandescent light bulb commercially viable and changed the world. It is also said that he said, when you have exhausted every possibility, remember this, you haven't. Write that on a sticky note and paste it on your bathroom mirror. Sometimes it helps. So this is mixed metaphor Sunday, but we need all the metaphors we can dredge up to get us through. You never know which one is going to carry you on any particular day. And that's the whole point of all this. We don't know how the game's going to come out. So I'll go back to the one we started with. Life is a ball game being played each day. Life is a ball game everybody can play. We can never know what's standing at home plate waiting for us there. That's why life is a ball game, and we got to play it fair. Amen, and blessed be.